Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Blair Garner went from his first job in radio in his small Texas hometown of Canyon to building one of the largest, most successful syndicated radio shows in history after midnight. All of this led him to being inducted into both the National Radio Hall of Fame and the Country Radio Hall of Fame. Now he's the proud owner of the Mule House, a 550-seat venue in Mule Town, better known as Columbia, Tennessee. He'll tell us all about that soon. Along with this, he and his husband Eric and their two kids let Blair be what he's always wanted to be, a dad. He's not just a successful businessman, he's a great person. I'm thankful to have him as a friend. Here's Blair Garner. Blair Garner, my friend, how are you? I'm awesome. I'm so glad to see you. Man, no kidding. We're both still alive. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. <laughs> and it's been a while yeah. since we've been alive. Yeah. How long have you been in Tennessee? I moved to Tennessee, I guess, let's see, the kids were five. They're 17 now, so 12, 13 years. Man. Out of that. You like it? I love it. I wish I'd moved here earlier, you know. Really? I, in a lot, yeah. I think that, you know, when I look at California, I loved my time in California. Man, oh, it, was, yeah. it was the right time in my life, you know. I like it when you live the right phase of your life at the right time. Yeah. You know, instead of kind of trying to lean back into what was, which you never really can. Um, you know, I lived my life the right way in New York, same in LA. Uh, when the kids took my focus, you know, that became my life's most cherished yeah. role. Um, you know, it, it mandated, I, I was raised where you say, please. And thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Excuse me. Just manners were really drilled in. And when I was trying to teach my kids that in California, you know, their friends, their parents weren't doing those same kinds of thing. It's, it, it's a different mindset in a mm -hmm. way. A lot of the kids that they were going to preschool with, you know, they were all, taken care of by a nanny, kind of the parenting was abdicated uh, and given over to someone else. Right. And so having a kid in L.A. that says, please and thank you, yes sir, yes ma'am, not a very popular thing. And when other parents don't have similar decisions with their own kids, you know, you lose that support of other families doing the same. And not to paint with this broad brush that all families there and all families here, but it my way of of trying to teach respect and gratitude and kindness the way that I was raised in my small town in Texas are better in line with the majority of yeah. parents in this area. So it really made sense to move here. And I, and I do wish that I had done it earlier because, unfortunately, I listed my house uh, about, I don't know, a week before the uh, 2008 crash. Oh, man. And so – <laughs> the house sat and sat and sat, and I just watched the price continue to go down and mm. down and down. So if nothing, you know, if for no other reason, I yeah. wish I'd gotten out a little earlier. But. So polite children make the parents not popular? Well, you know, first of all, if you if you hold your kids to certain expectations, 
you know, you're not necessarily going to be the most popular person on your kids list sure. because you're, you're always trying to remind them. But I think there's a time later when they are adults and they go out into the world of job interviews or meeting the parents of, you know, someone they hope to marry. When you are well-mannered, when you're kind, those kinds of things benefit you in so many different ways. Oh man. And I've tried to explain to my kids that, listen, I know it's a pain. Yeah. I know that you don't want to do this. But the hope is that if you're in an inter- interview, if you're in a situation where all things being equal, the other candidate is exactly at the same place. But if you add on top of that manners, yeah, you got the golden ticket. Yeah, because everybody notices the do the manners and don't the manners. That's right. It's yeah. the whole thing like Maya Angelou said about people – will not remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yeah. I think there's so much wisdom to that. And I, I'm sorry if I misquoted that, but the basic idea. My, uh, <laughs> this is so dumb. One of my biggest pet peeves is at a restaurant when the person will bring your meal, you right. go, thank you. And they go, no problem. And I go, well, I know it's not a problem. It's, it's your, your job. job. <laughs> and I know you don't mean it that way. You You're think not- the response would be, of course. Yeah, You know, and you look at a business like Chick-fil-A, which, uh, you know, politically, I don't agree with some of their stances, obviously, the whole gay marriage thing, but um, which I think they have revised. However, what they do, their corporate culture is so admirable because when the the whole business is based on service and attitude of service, which comes from, you know, the Bible and from – their religious leanings yeah. uh, being of service. And when you say thank you to someone at Chick-fil-A, they don't say you're welcome. They say my pleasure. My pleasure. And that's it's a very fine line of distinction, yet mm-hmm. it's one that makes an imprint. You may not recognize it. You may not call it out. But, yeah, Chick-fil-A is great. They got it going on. We, we kind of looked at their business model, trying to implement a lot of that strategy into what we're doing here with the Mule House. Mm-hmm. And one of the main things that I learned, it's out of a book called Is Everybody Happy? Um, They talk about people go where they feel welcome, but they return where they feel appreciated. Hmm. So right there, you're talking about how you make them feel. It goes back to that same thing that Maya Angelou was talking about. Manners are one of the elemental, um, foundational aspects of, I think, putting yourself in a situation where you rise above the pack because you treat people well and you treat them with kindness yeah. and, and you work hard. That's kids, you know, the, the kids were grown up. Um, we have a family mantra. It's, it's uh, you can do anything in this life that you choose as long as you do two things. And the kids will fire this right back at you. Work hard and be kind. <laughs> I like that. And also it doesn't, it doesn't take any longer to be polite and kind than it does to glare at somebody or, yeah. you know, and not hold the door for somebody. The same thing. You, know, you see that, like, one of those Instagram posts, it takes more muscles to frown than it does to right. smile. <laughs> All right. So it's right next to my poster with the cat hanging from a thing that says, hang, hang in, in there, there buddy. <laughs> right? Um, but there's so much truth to that, as stupid yeah. as that seems. But there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. <laughs> so you are, said you're from Texas, Canyon, Texas, I believe. Yep. Which is just north of Happy, Texas. Oh, my gosh. You know Happy, the town without a frown? <laughs> that is that is their slogan. Welcome to Happy, Texas, the town without oh a frown. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. And Tulia and White Deer and 
Just south of Amarillo. Yeah. So you uh, are you from a musical family? I am. Uh, my mom and dad met in band. Uh, he was first chair. She was second. And uh, dad taught public schools. He initially taught uh, band in Lubbock, Texas at uh, uh, middle school and then started at uh, Hutchinson High School, I want to say. One, or Monterey, Monterey High School there in Lubbock. And he was recruited away by USC, where he became the director of marching bands there. He was in the wow. Rose Bowl in 1963. And Dang. Played Carnegie Hall twice. Uh, yeah, my dad's pretty, he's pretty awesome. No kidding. Yeah. So, so how, how did you get from that into radio? Did, were you into radio in Texas, or did that happen in California? I was in Texas. And, okay. you know, it's funny. The, the, good, the good thing that I learned out of performing you know, with my dad was that you kind of became accustomed to being on stage in front of people. And, you know, I was still nervous, of course. Uh, but today, you know, my heart rate walking out on stage in front of, you know, I've, I've been in the, the center of Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Uh, where I was the ringmaster, the honorary ringmaster for the Barners, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Really? It's right at the top of my resume. <laughs> Uh, wrote an elephant in the whole thing. It's hilarious. But, you know, it's, it's so weird because my heart rate, my uh, I'm, I'm just kind of like the same as you and I right now. It doesn't yeah. really phase me. Um, so I, I got that foundation from, from dad's teachings. But the way that I got into radio was uh, because of my lifelong passion that began actually before I was 11. I bought my first car when I was 11. Everything I've ever done is all related to cars. Everything. Radio, you name it. And I was a senior in high school. I had already formed my first corporation when I was 15. I had four college kids that worked for me, uh, and we detailed cars. This was back before having a car detailing company was the thing. You know, the cars would be traded into Ron Clark Ford or Plain Chevrolet or wherever. And I was the front man. I went and made contact with the sales manager there at the used car. And so a car get traded in, traded in, and I would go pick the car up. I had these four kids from college working at the house. They would be de- detailing the cars, and so I just shuttling cars, but I was making some good money. I bet. You know? And so when I was, I guess, 17, there was a man that lived down the street from us in our hometown, uh, our neighborhood, actually, just down the block. His name was Jack Aldridge, and he had a 1957 Ford Thunderbird with his uh, peacock blue with the white porthole roof on top. Nice. And I wanted really, really to buy it from him, but he he wouldn't sell it. And so I, I left and went away. And I came home from school the next day, and my mom had taken a note from him on the bar. It said, Jack wants to see you. Go to his office and gave the address. So when I went to the address and pulled up, <clears throat> lo and behold, it was the local radio station. And I went inside. I thought he was going to sell me the car, so I had my checkbook with me, right? And I go inside, and I said, Jack, this is great. He said, yeah, I think so, too. I said, so uh, what, what's the number? Where are we going to land? And he said, for what? <laughs> I said, for the car. <laughs> he said, what? What car? I said, well, you said to come up here. You're selling me the car, right? He goes, no, no. When you were talking to me yesterday in my driveway, I was listening to you speak. I think you have a good voice and you should be on radio. I was like, what? He said, just do me a favor. Do it you know, as an experiment. I'll throw yeah. you on to Sunday night, 6 to midnight, you know. And he didn't tell me anything about what to say or just basically hear the buttons, have fun. And so I did it. And I went to school the next day. And I was, as, as a student, I was a very, I was the, 
I was a crossing guard when I was in elementary school. I was the assistant to the vice principal, you know, collecting all the absentee slips. Mm-hmm. From all the, I, I was a very good young man, and yes. I was in the honor society, and I did everything that I was supposed to do. I was that kid, yep. like, nauseatingly good. Yeah. And um, so, I don't know, how did I get there? But the, the thing was that the cars um, led me. Oh, oh, I don't remember what I was going to say. So, and then the jocks at school, you know, I was not popular with them because I wouldn't allow them to cheat off my tests. And uh, because that would be right. Yeah. Um, so the way that it all panned out was I went to school after that, that one Sunday shift on the radio station. Some of these jocks were like, hey, man. Dude. That's uh, – I heard you on the radio yesterday. <laughs> yeah. That was, was kind of cool. And all of a sudden, I was like, really? So he, Jack, called me to school the next Monday, right after that experience with the jocks there at school. And he said, You're, you listen, I think you really got something. Um, I'll pay you $600 a month to do nights on this station. So I like, really? And at 600 bucks, you know, it's 1982. And Plus your car detailing. Well, I wrapped that up because oh, okay. I was making more money with less effort, you know. And so I had this money. I'm living at home. My parents you yeah. know, have to pay rent. So what did I do? I went out and bought two new cars <laughs> because of the money. <laughs> bought a new Corvette. Bought a new Audi. Nice. And that was my that was my thing. I only did it so that I could get the cars. And I never really put this tremendous amount of I, – I, I wish that I could tell you I was that kid that had the radio station in my parents' basement and all that kind of – it was just a means to an end. It was a means for me to get cars, but then I fell in love with it and, yeah. you know, what you can do. But you didn't you didn't hear Wolfman Jack on KOMA in Oklahoma City and go, holy crap, I got to be that guy. No, I heard Steve O'Brien at WINY New York. Okay. My brother was going to school there, and I just liked the music they played because they were not playing music like that back in Canada, yeah. Texas. And I recorded it on a cassette tape. And when I'd been in radio for, I guess it was like three or four weeks – I remembered I had this tape of the station from New York, and I was driving around town in my 78 Grand Prix SJ two-tone blue, feeling like, you know, I'm listening to a New York radio station on my cassette yeah. deck. And I remembered one day that he had given out the request line number there, and I thought, well, you know what? He's in radio. I should call him. So I called and called and called and finally got through, got a real answer. Why and why? I said, yes, yeah, this is Steve O'Brien. He said, yes, it is. I said, hey, my name's Blair. I'm 17. I'm in radio too. I just started three weeks ago. <laughs> and he's like, okay. That's I said, great, I think you're really good. And could I get some advice from you? So I sent him an air check, which I didn't even know at the time was called an air check. Right. And he listened to it, sent me back some really great notes with that NBC letterhead. You know, I think Stern was there on ABC at the time. Yeah. And, um, or WNBC. And, yeah, he sent back these really detailed notes, and within three months, I went from station market number 180 or 125, whatever Amarillo was, to market number 10 in Dallas. It's like three months. Dang. More cars. <laughs> Legit. Yeah. Yeah. So did you always – I mean – were you doing music? Was it talk? Was it a combination? Cause I, no, it was, it was top 40 then. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever want to do a talk? I mean, you do well, so many interviews that you kind of do a talk show. I, you know, I like communicating a lot. I like getting stories yeah. out of other people. Um, 
you know, as a, as a talk show host, I would like to do that as long as it can be something where it's a call to action for people to believe in themselves hmm. and to reclaim the dream that may have died inside of them a long time ago. To remember that, you know, life is great before yeah. you start realizing that other people are making judgments based on you. And you decisions know. for you. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when you believe that you can do anything, you know, that, that innocence of yeah. childhood will propel you to the heights. If, if you can reclaim that kind of innocence where you really trust in yourself and believe in yourself. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's the kind of show I'd like to do. I can't also imagine staying passionate, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, I can't imagine staying passionate for – on a, three hours a day on a political talk radio show. Well, political talk, I couldn't do. After a while, I, oh, I couldn't do that. It's like ever. people say, would you ever run for mayor of Columbia here? I'm like, no. No. Like, why not? Because you're always going to piss off half the people. Yeah. There is no winning. No matter what your and answer is, you're right, alienating half your audience. When I hear the political talk shows of today, there's so much vitriol and there's oh, so man. much, you know, you're a bad guy because you don't agree with me yeah. or, or you're stupid because you don't. And there used to be this political uh, or this, I don't know, kind of common rule of kindness that, that people, you may not agree with them, but you can respectfully disagree. Yeah. Those days don't seem to be present in the talk show world. And everything is based on what's salacious and what sells and what's over the top and what's shocking. That ain't me. And I couldn't live with myself if I drummed up that kind of, you know. You know Jeffrey Steele, of course. Yeah, Jeff. He said one day, he goes, man, this world. He goes, it's getting to the point where you can't like something unless you hate something else. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, what kind of car do you drive? Chevy. Well, why do you hate Fords? I don't. I just like this Chevy. My brother drives a Chevy. My dad drives a Chevy. Why do you hate Fords? No, Fords are great cars. But you can't, you can't, the world won't let you have both anymore. Oh, no, you can't be a, if, if you're a Chevy guy and you see somebody with a Ford, you're like, oh, fix or repair daily, right? right? <laughs> or phone on, found on roadside dead. <laughs> or first on race day. There you go. Depends well, on what if you're a Ford guy, all right. <laughs> yeah. But then you got the people with the bow ties. You got Mopar, no car. You know, everybody, they find their line of division. And yeah. instead of looking across the room and thinking of all of the things that we have in common, we focus on why we are different. Yeah. Often, I think that is rooted in fear. Absolutely. People are afraid of what they don't know and don't understand. You know, you can have, you, you can go to the Church of Christ. You can go to a Jewish synagogue. Uh, the teachings of the, uh, you know, the leaders are wildly different based on totally different set of beliefs. Sure. But you still, both people, wish the best for their kids. Yeah. They, they wish for you know good things for other people. They, they try to implement the golden rule. But even though you have so much in common, they'll focus on that one thing. It's fear and it's – you're too lazy to figure out what we have in common. Yeah. So it's easier just to complain about what we don't have in common. Right. Mm. So what was your radio path – to Los Angeles, where I first met you. Well, so from that small town in Texas, uh, I went to Dallas and was going to school there, working part-time. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it was great. I got a, an opportunity to go work in Washington, D.C. 
and uh, that was something that kind of came out of nowhere. And I went there. I was there for nine months, and this was one of those moments that I realized I was not living my life in the right way at the right time. Mm. Um, it it kind of became glaringly apparent when I said goodbye to my home state, goodbye to all my friends, and moved to this, you know, metropolis up east in New York. I'm sorry, in uh, Washington D.C. That I knew no one, and the money was amazing. And of course, you know, I could buy more cars. Uh, <laughs> but I finally woke up one day, and it's like. I was just so lonely and, and I finally realized, you know, I really just need to finish my degree. So that's when I went back to the University of Texas and I worked part-time there at KHFI uh, for a man whose son is now our general manager here at the Mule House. It's a crazy story. Dang. Uh, but so I, I finished my degree at UT and I got my degree in advertising. And as I looked at the beginning salaries – you know, I knew it was so much less than yeah. I would be paid in radio. So I sent out one air check and it was to KKBQ in, in Houston and I got a job offer. I went and took middays there and uh, I'd been there for, I guess it was coming up on 60 days. And back in the day, they had these Birch ratings. It was a radio call out way of, you know, mm-hmm. getting immediate ratings and uh, the Birch numbers of my midday shift came back and I, the, the listenership had gone up like 35% first month and another 20 the next. And the PD at KRBE was not happy, our competing station. And so he began recommending me for jobs outside of the market. So it was like 60 days in, in Houston, seven thirty in the morning, my phone rings. Is this Blair Garner? I said, yes, it is. This is Larry Berger with WPLJ in New York. And I said, You're right, Larry. He said, no, I'm, this really is, is really Larry <laughs> yeah. Berger. Like, really? Said, yeah. He said, I've heard a lot about you, and I'm looking to uh, hire some new staff. I'd love to hear what you sound like. So, oh, that's really kind of you, man. Thank you, Mr. Berger. But unfortunately, I just got here. They've been really gracious, and they gave me a signing bonus to come. And I, I just don't think that would be the right thing to do. Yeah. And he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, but thank you for your interest. I'm, I find that, you know, it's very kind of you. So I called my parents and said, this is the coolest thing that just happened. I got a call, right? I totally like was Gomer or Goofy or whatever. And uh, my dad said, you turn him down? Said, well, yeah, dad. I didn't think it would be the right thing to do. He said, well, you should at least hear what it is that he's talking yeah. about. So he did. He Larry had said at the end of that first call, he said, well, at least send me a tape because I hear so much. I just want to hear what you sound like. So <clears throat> based on what my dad said, I recorded the show that day. Federal expressed it to Larry he got it the next morning, 7.30 phone rings because, you know, time difference. And he said, Blair, I got your tape. I said, oh, good. Do you like it? He said, uh, yeah. I want – I really want you to – I turned him down three times. Man. And it got stupid. And so <clears throat> I offered to pay back the signing bonus that uh, KKBQ had given me. And the, uh, the general manager's name was Al Brady Law. And I'm going to call you out, Al, because you were so mean to me. <laughs> it's true. He yelled across the and – I, and I explained. I said, I'm so sorry and you know, apologized. And, and Bill Richards, who was the PD then, was so mm-hmm. cool about it. He said, dude, I would do the same thing. I get yeah. it. This is a once-in-a-lifetime. And Albert Law yelled at me at the top of his lungs. If I had a rope, you'd be hanging from this fucking building right now. Gosh. He was really, really abusive. So 
Man. And and it was at that time that Larry Berger from New York had Jim Kerr, the morning man at, at PLJ, call me. He said, hey, Blair, I'm Jim Kerr, morning guy. He said, just, I heard that you know things are kind of messy there for you. Um, I just want you to know that as uncomfortable as that may be and how mean they are treating you, there's an equal, if not greater amount of excitement and enthusiasm about welcoming you to your new family here in New York City. That's great. And so I just kind of served my time those last, I think I gave them a month notice, you know, trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, when I got to New York, it was just, could have been better. Could have so, been so it was so much different than your experience in D.C. just because you were more mature, you just had more experience under your belt, and so yeah. it didn't seem so like a foreign country as D.C. did? Yeah, it was much better. And also, you know, PLJ at that time, you know, we were neck and neck with Z100. Oh, yeah. And the the level of cachet that you had when you worked at the station was incredible. So you were never shy on opportunities to go out and to either be part of a remote yeah. or, you know, I remember one of the very first things I did. So I, I go to New York and they say, okay, we don't want you to be Blair Garner. I'm like, what? You know, we don't like the name. So what do you want me to be? <laughs> well, we've all figured it out. We've had several meetings with, you know, corporate and blah, blah, blah. We have two names for you. You can either be Charlie Brown and I'm thinking of the guy that gets the football pulled away from all the time. Yeah, exactly. That ain't going to cut Or your other choice is Skywalker. Like Skywalker? Yeah. What do you think? So I'm not going to be Charlie Brown. I guess it's Skywalker. So for four years in New York, I'm you know going around like, hey, I don't know, Skywalker. And so I go to my first – they send us out you know, you send us out to Long Island Mall or wherever to do an appearance and – they send you off with the promotions crew and you got these stacks of shirts and they'd already had the eight by tens printed up so you could sign them for people or whatever. And they're only standing in line to get the shirt. They really don't care about me. Yeah. But <clears throat> at the end of it, there were these two <laughs> sweet old, old women, like, you know, 70s, right? And they, I saw them waiting in line and very kind of very excited. Right. And they come up and I said, uh, can I sign these for you? Yes. And this would be for Gertrude. And this would be for me. My name is Olive. Or, you know, whatever their <laughs> names were. Something like that. So I signed them. <coughs> Excuse me. And as they were about to walk away, they said, we've seen all your movies. <laughs> oh, that is so great. Thank so, you, ma'am. Yeah, so that was New York City. Um and my last, I'd been there for a little over three years, and on April 1st of, I guess it was 1991, something like that, they came in and announced that uh, they uh, had hired Scott, uh, Scott Shannon to be our new PD. And, you know, Scott's reputation preceded him. I'm, yeah. I'm proud to say the man he is today is a man I love dearly. I think the world of him. And I learned so much by working for Scott. All that said, it wasn't necessarily the most pleasant experience. Yeah. He's a very demanding person, but... He doesn't demand any more of anyone else than he demands of himself. Uh, but I, there were points at which our, our backgrounds were so completely different. He told me one time, he said, I like it when my staff fights. I'm like, oh, that's completely different from my background. Yeah. You know, I want to give the world a hug. And uh, 
So it was nine months and I it was in the middle of a three-year contract and I went to dinner with the PD and I said, this is just not working. He said, well, you need to talk to our general manager. So I go to dinner with Mitch Dolan, the general manager. I said, Mitch, man, I know I've got two and a half years left on this deal, but I just can't do this. He goes, why? He said, it's Scott. He said, well, Scott doesn't feel like he knows you, doesn't understand you. And I said, the reason that Scott doesn't understand me is because the things that motivate me in life are truth, integrity, and honesty. And to him, those are concepts. Yeah. And I don't even know if they're ones that he understands. Now, that was Scott at the time. Again, I want to yeah. draw a very clear line of delineation because he's a great guy today. Uh, and I'm so thankful, again, for the things that I learned under his tutelage. Anyway, so Mitch told me, he said, listen, we're working with him. Give it uh, – give me another month. Give me four weeks. And if at the end of the four weeks – you know, you're still not happy. Let me know. So I went home and I marked it on my calendar. Four weeks in, I walk in that morning and to Mitch's office and I said, "Okay, today's the day." He said, "What? What are you talking about?" I said, "You said that if I waited four weeks and things hadn't gotten better, you'd let me out, and it's not gotten better, and I want out." So he, true to his word, hmm. you know, he allowed me out of my contract and I had no job. I couldn't even interview with other stations because. They would then be possibly sued for tampering with my contract. So I literally huh. walked away from the afternoon show in New York City at one of the highest queuing radio stations in the world and quit with no job. I had a 76 Porsche 911 in storage in my hometown in Canyon, flew back home, threw a battery in it, drove it to, to L.A., and as I was driving in, there was, to my way of thinking, there was only one station in America that I could go to that wouldn't be seen as a step back, and that would be KISS FM in L.A. Mm -hmm. And so Bill Richards, my old friend from Houston, was now the PD in Dang. L.A. And I said, I said, hey, what's going on? I said, well, I'm in town. Well, really? How long are you here? I said, well, I'm moving here. He said, are you serious? Do you have a job? I said, no. He goes, do you want to work? I said, yes, I do. He said, come in this <laughs> afternoon. We'll sign papers. <laughs> So I went in Dang. on my very first day in L.A., literally had no contact with him before because that wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Right. And uh, within, you know, he said, I'm going to throw you on air uh, part-time right now, but I'm going to make room. So sure enough, uh, about 45 days in, I was announced as the new afternoon guy at KISS FM in L.A. And based on the <laughs> displeasure that I had had in New York – of working for someone else, that was the fuel. When you come up on a controversy in your life and you dislike your situation, you have a choice. You can can wallow in that misery and be fearful of making a change because you don't believe in yourself enough. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, this is not right. This is not right for who I am as a person. I'm going to leave it. And then I'm going to use that frustration that I experienced as fuel for me to do my next thing. And so that's what I elected to do. Yep. And I started another company, and that was after midnight. It took me two years to write the business plan uh, while I was on air at, at KISS. And uh, wrote the business plan, got the venture capital together. Um, I got two doctors at Cedars-Sinai to bankroll the deal. Uh, the, the investment was $1.2 million dollars. Uh, we were about 10 months in. Premier came and made a run at us. We were invested at that point. Our cash flow had only been 750000 and they offered us 900000 
for the for the business. Mm-hmm. We said, no, we want a million. They wouldn't do it. So we didn't sell, and we waited two more years. They came back, and we did sell to them for $9.2 million. So waiting was a good thing. So waiting was a good thing. It's the second marshmallow. It's what? It's the second marshmallow. <laughs> What's the first marshmallow? You don't know that experiment? Huh. Oh, man, I refer to this in our team here so much. They did a study with these kids that are, like, you know, seven years old. They put them in a room by themselves, and they put a marshmallow right in front of them. So now here's the deal. I'm going to leave you for a few minutes. I'm going to be gone for probably two, three minutes. And if you cannot eat the marshmallow, when I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow. Now, you can go ahead and eat the marshmallow if you want, but you're not going to get the second one. <laughs> but if you will wait and keep your eye on the prize, you can get a second marshmallow. And you know it was really interesting watching these seven-year-old kids or whatever, yeah. the, the mental leaps that they were going through in their mind trying to figure it out. But sometimes you got to keep your eye on the greater the greater prize that second yeah. marshmallow. So, for me, that's what that was. I heard a phrase similar. Well, it's actually not similar, but the phrase was, "You got to tear down a mountain to get to the diamonds." It's true. And I thought that's freaking awesome. Same thing is like when you're going through tough stuff. Yeah, you have to remind yourself that every flower that you see that is so beautiful on God's green earth, it pushed through dirt. Yeah. To rise up. And see the sun. Huh. Did you um? Had you ever worked overnights before? No. Was that your decision to call it after midnight and to to make it all evening Early, late night stuff? That was the that was the concept, you know. Um, that and that's one of the things that people were like, "How do you get this guy that was doing afternoons in New York and then doing afternoons at Kiss in L.A. and he's going to do overnight country?" Well, you know, that entrepreneurial bent on my end has always been well-placed. Like I said, my first corporation when I was 15. Um, I think you have to identify your opportunity. Scott Borchetta, who you know as well, says, um, look for the open lane and floor it. Yep. So as I looked for – I knew I wanted to start my own thing. And I was looking for that opportunity. Where's the niche? Where's the need? If you talk to people, what is their need mm-hmm. for program directors at that time who actually used to be able to make their own decisions? Um, the the staffing of the overnight day part was really pro- problematic because the jocks that tended to be on were the the newbies, um, and as soon as they got wanted, they got better. They were gunning to get the you know afternoon show or the morning show. And so it was this revolving door of talent. And often if somebody called in sick or whatever, who do you think got to go in? It was the PD. So I knew that that was a thorn in the side of many programmers. And then I started like, okay, well, there is a need. There is a need for an overnight answer. And I thought, well, if I did a show, but who's going to be listening overnights? And back then, based on radar – uh, I found in, in the research, it's clear as a bell that, uh, a radio station retained 30 to nearly 40% the size of their daytime audience overnights. So the thesis of my company after midnight was if I take that 30 to 40% of the listeners in Pittsburgh and add that to the 30 to 40% of listeners in Phoenix and add that to Dallas and add that to Austin and add that. Yeah, man. And so then you've identified a need and you built up you uh, this amalgamation of listeners across all the country for a day part that have never had anything done specifically for them. Yeah. 
because they wanted they you know there's they deserve good programming as well yeah. and so that was the thesis of the company and and it worked and within uh, 60 days we had over 100 affiliates the next month we had Man. 160 and built it up to where we had just under 300 affiliates across the country I did it for 20 years and you know it was it was all about looking at the market yeah. identifying the opportunity and then how are you going to answer their need and when you look at this, the disruption that so many of us have gone through because of the pandemic or, or whatever it is, whenever there is disruption, there is always opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that is where the, the winners will not allow the change of their world to define them. They instead rise up and say, I'm going to use this as my opportunity to do something different. I'm going to look for that window of opportunity, which is always, always there. Yep. Yeah. And it was it was a great show. I thought it was so cool. Dude, it was so good. And it felt I see exactly what you're saying about the 30 or 40 percent, because they weren't and no offense, but they weren't taking the 16 year old kid and putting him on at six to midnight on a Sunday. Right. It was a professional, great sounding show. Tons of guests, tons of personalities. It was always live. It was that was so much fun, man. I remember one of our staff members at one point said they had over his first CRS that we had gone to. We were only, you know, a few months old. Over at the Operaland Hotel, they were walking around, and one of the the stalwarts of our industry, I think one of the record label heads or something, was saying, "I've never seen someone break through the you know the the good old boy thing was very much alive, yeah, and how did they break through." And, and become part of that inner sanctum. And I did it through manners. When mm-hmm. someone came and was a guest on my show, I wrote them a thank you note. Mm-hmm. Not just to the artist, but also to the, 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 the people, the promo team from the labels, to the managers, whoever was involved yeah. in bringing Vince Gill to my studio. Right. Man, they got a handwritten note. And, that, you know, just, again, you stood out from the pack. Yep. Because you were doing exactly the kinds of things that your parents had taught you to do. Yeah. With that attitude, did it ever bug you that, because it was on later in the day, that an act or somebody might go to dinner and get drunk or whatever and then come in and do your show? And they – I imagine it would have been easy to be offended because they weren't taking it as serious as you were both the interview, but the opportunity to be on 300 Affiliates. Well, there were a couple of opportunities where I cut interviews short. You did? Yeah. Uh, David Copperfield and uh, Steven Seagal. The majority of interviews that were challenging were from people outside of the industry. Okay. Uh, because, you know, you know, being a promo guy for years, that, you know, you're watching out for the the artist as well. Yeah. Because you got somebody back in, in Nashville you have to answer to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were a couple of opportunities where an artist came in. First of all, the liquor was a great thing for the show because the listeners knew that the, the fans, the, the artists were the same as they were. Yeah. They'd put on a, you know, they'd done a long day's work and they were just blowing off steam and having fun. And that's when they would come in with their guitars and they would just be doing cover songs. They'd start doing, I mean, I still somewhere I have Toby Keith doing Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> you know, I was like, "That's crazy that you know that." I mean, line for line. Yeah. 
but that it kind of lent itself to that. And the other thing too is that I I've never been one to, you know, I I I have a very clear perspective of what my role was. I was not the star. Mm. The star is the singer. Yeah. And my role is to be there to uplift and to shine the spotlight on them and to, you know, because I care about my industry, I care about my format, and I want to do nothing that will destroy. I want only to promote and to build. And so when an artist came in and if they were too far over the line, I would find a creative way of like, you know, keeping them in check until we can get to a graceful place of thanking them for coming by and then and then leaving that. I only had one artist who came in, I mean, completely out of control. And, um, you know, it was funny because th- this person, I think it had some battles with alcohol. Mm. And um, when they came in, were just so, you know, they were saying things that were like talking about us. So, so if you were elected president, what would be the first thing that you would do? I'd blow this thing up. What? <laughs> he said, yeah, I you say, I'd say, I still remember, we got a lot of that, what do they call that, nuclear stuff. I said, weapons? Yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of that stuff. I just say, and this is coming from a parent, a two, you know, nine-year-old and six-year-old girl. We just blow it up. Like, wow. Gosh, okay. And Brad Paisley was working out at Buck Owens uh, Studios at KCC at a mm-hmm. big gym there. And, and Brad later told me, he said, dude. That was crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. It also, I, I brought that one to a, to a cl- quick end as best I could. And then the, the promo person for the label thanked me, you know, because they were like, what do I do? Yeah, and you're just trying to blessedly do damage control. Yeah. Man. So on a completely different subject, how did the pajama costume party at CRS get started? <laughs> Well, the uh, that ultimately led to the disco party. So yes, the disco party. The the way that it all began was the pick and parlor. If you remember that at the Opryland, absolutely, uh, was kind of a karaoke thing. And um, I had struck up a good friendship with Doug Supernaw, Aww. and uh, Doug was really a terrific guy back in those days. He's yep. you know, of course, sadly passed away and had a very very challenged life. Yep, but. Um, Doug would bring over his friends, and, and they'd start singing, and all of a sudden, it became known as the After Midnight Party at the Pickin' Parlor, and we'd done that for two years, and they were singing karaoke, and I went to my business partners in L.A. and said, I got it. So what? I said, here's what we need to do. After the New Faces show, I want to have a party. And they're like, okay, that's good. I said, yeah, a disco party. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, because it's everybody's twanged out. Listen, we've been to guitar pull after guitar pull. We've been to new faces. We've been to the, you know, all of this stuff. And these people like to have fun. Yeah. There's no rule saying that if you listen to country that you haven't also listened to disco or you haven't also listened to rock or whatever. And they're like, man, that's really taking a chance. And I said, you only will succeed. Listen, the middle is the dead zone. You got to make a stand. You got to do something yep. that's different. And so we did that first disco party with an open bar. And that first year, our open bar tab was like thirty six grand. And 
it was a blowout. It was yeah. crazy. And the next year we came back. And, you know, now we've got people like Keith Urban and Brad Paisley and Taylor Swift come out and do a cover of a disco hit or an 80s hit. Taylor did I Love Rock, rock and Roll. <laughs> uh, thanks to her, that was the first time I was ever in People magazine. Now, I was dressed up as Gene Simmons. Somebody knew. Nobody knew that it was I myself. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so they came and it became this thing. And people were starting to pack their disco gear when they would come to CRS. And it was just... You know, by the time we finally pulled the plug on it, our nightly bill—I think the final bar bill was eighty-six grand. Man, and you know, I'm spending money like a record company. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, when they could. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, we had to pull the plug on that, unfortunately, because by that I would have kept it going, but I'd sold the company at that time, and you know, they had. That was that was one of the different things when we owned the company for the first three years. You know, we were the only thing on our plate. We had two affiliate relations people, and the only show they had to sell was After Midnight. Wow. And I had a staff of 33 people when I sold the company. Man. And by the time I left, it was just me and a full-time producer and then a guy that did part-time. Three. And that's when a lot of the, you know, um, stuff that After Midnight was, was made, built on, that just... We we spent money to make money. We made a lot of money. Yeah, we spent a lot of money. But when you are not the only thing on the plate, when suddenly you're being sold and packaged along with this countdown, along with this show, yeah. we had a sixty minute or sixty second spot in the mornings that you can run, and you know it became just another thing. It was not its own menu item. Well, and, you started pirate radio essentially, and, and then it went to. Yeah. What it ended up being. It was yeah. like, well, that's not why you started that. I'm so proud of the fact it's still on the air. Oh, no kidding. Uh, thank, thank God for Cody. You know? Yeah. Who does a really good job. He does a very good job. So what got you off of overnights? Were you just – Oh, Did you just go back know, to kids and stuff? Uh, no. It was, the, it was the money being waved in front of you. Okay. You know, and it was – I like money big amount of money yeah. and um, so I s- stepped off and started doing the morning show for New York City for Nash FM and mm-hmm. then they elected to roll that out um, that was a much different experience than it was with After Midnight F- let's go back to After Midnight had I started that had I gone to uh, Tim Kelly and Craig Kitchen and the guys back at Premiere in the day uh, Steve Lehman and said, Hey, listen, I got an idea for a show. It's an overnight show. It would have been owned by them. And every decision that I would have made from the formatting of the program to how I interviewed guests to promotions, it would all been, have been under their purview. When you own it yourself, you can make a decision on the fly. Yeah. And that's when we really made a name. And, you know, when you become part of the corporate world and things are outside of your control, often you wind up with something different. And when we started the morning show, I think we had a, I think we had a really great shot at it. I mean, hey, I was number one in Nashville over Bobby yeah. for a while. Uh, but then I, I wasn't given the, the marketing support. And it's... I, I lay one of the biggest failings at my own feet because I'm a people pleaser and because, you know, it was set up where I had a 
call with the New York City program director one morning, and the next morning it was a call with a consultant. The next morning it was uh, a call with another PD at another market. And me, I always, I never want to say no to someone. I want to say, oh, absolutely, I'd be happy to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so New York would say, well, we want you to do more of this. Oh, okay, got it. And then the consultant would say, well, no, you need to do more of this. Oh, okay, I got that too. And then you try to please all these different people and you wind up with something that is in the safe zone, that isn't yeah. as, you know. And and that was, I think, one of the biggest challenges. And, and that's my not owning the role the way that I should have. Mm-hmm. I should have been more firm and saying, no, this is what it is. And this is what we're doing. I should have stayed pure vision, and I didn't. And I tried to please people. And, you know, we had a good run. We had good numbers. We made money for the company. But it wasn't, you know, the kind of reaction that they had wanted. Yeah. And so, and then when my daughter came to me, because it took me five and a half years to become a dad, five embryo transfers, three surrogates, five egg donors, all on me. Yeah. As a single gay man. Yeah. Doing it on my own. Um, and so, because parenting was the one thing that I wanted to be more than anything, I wanted to be a parent. And Ava said, you know, dad, you've always said that nothing would ever come before us. Said, yeah, honey. She goes, I don't feel like that right now. Mm. So what do you mean? She goes, you go to bed at six thirty. You're up at one in the morning. I don't see you. I was like, wow. Mm. Yeah. So went back and did the Blair Garner show after, you know, the. But but there was, you know, it was the greatest show that nobody ever knew about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I started After Midnight, I remember we were in our first quarter. I spent over $250,000 in marketing that show in the first quarter. I spent more than record labels in doing double page, double truck, four color ads for an overnight show. Week after week. After a week, Man. my partners were like, why are you doing this? You're spending our money. I said, listen, you got to be the firstest with the mostest. Someone else is going to come in and see the opportunity. We got to lock it up. We have to be a category killer from the first. Yeah. And it was that support. You know, you created the buzz. R&R loved us because we were spending, you know, a ton of dough. Yeah. Uh, but everyone was open up the, opening up R&R every week and seeing these ads and it's like, there's really something going on here. We didn't benefit from that same thing when we launched you know, right. the other shows. And unfortunately, you know, you can put on the greatest show in the world, but if that signal isn't on or if yeah. nobody knows about it, I hope you had fun because nobody else knows about it. Yeah. Hope you can spend the lint in your pockets. Yeah. Hmm. So I want to get to the mule house, obviously, but just – one more thing on where do you think country music is going and do you like it? I mean, don't, I don't want any names or anything, but do you, do you like what's happening where it's going to the music? Yeah. I love it. You do. I listen, you look at the, at the, the leaders in the entertainment industry. It's always those people who don't dig their heels in and say, this is what I do. Yeah. And I'm not going to change. Sure. Um, when I look at people like Reba, and I looked, you know, I saw her. Oh, she's got a clothing line at Dillard's. That's interesting. Hmm. She's got a television show. That's interesting. She's doing. She was in our gang. She was in the Little Rascals movie. 
That's crazy. She's in Tremors. She was in Tremors. She did all of these things. <laughs> yeah. She did not limit herself. And so, uh, you know, all of the eggs were not in one basket. Yeah. And Reba, in in a way, you know, remember when Madonna was known as the queen of reinvention? Well, yeah. I, I felt that, that Reba had always been that for our industry and continues Absolutely. to be with the gospel album and now with the, the New Deal back with MCA. Yep. Uh, I think that she's the beacon. She's the example by which when she took over Broadway, when they get your gun yeah. and people who would never have listened to a country radio station before went and saw her brilliance as Annie Oakley. Yeah. Um, and I mean, to this day, God bless Bernadette Peters who took the role over after her to be held to that comparison of Reba. Good oh, luck. Cow. Good oh. luck. But that's the thing is that, that yeah. she – she decided what her lane would be. Yeah. She owned it. She was a category killer. She locked it up. And that's what we tried to do with After Midnight. Yeah. That's killer. Well, tell us about the Mule House. <laughs> this is the venue of yours that we're sitting in right now, which is awesome. Thank you very much. 55,500 square feet. Former First Baptist Church in Columbia, Tennessee, which is the hometown of President James K. Polk, our 11th president. And it is affectionately nicknamed Mule Town because all of the mules, this is the mule trading capital of the world. Yep. Uh, there's a yearly event called Mule Days and people like 300,000 people converge upon little Columbia, Tennessee in support of mules. And they've got the mule, the mule queen. And I mean, it's like, it sounds really... But it's just an amazing community. Yeah. So bought a house here seven years ago, and that was when we were doing the morning show, just as a place to get away. And I, I came back and kind of got to know the folks around here, and it reminded me of what I'd said goodbye to when I left my hometown in Texas in 1986. I bet. It reminded me of community. See, I love that. Not to interrupt you, sorry about that, but that's what I loved when I came to Nashville 30. Four years ago or whatever. At the age of 12, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I could drive. Yeah. Is that there was, t like community, there was neighborhoods. Yeah. You had the neighborhood grocery store. You had the neighborhood hardware store that may not know your name, but when you come back in, he's going to go, hey, man, did you get that radiator working? Right, exactly. And there might be a neighborhood theater. And I love that. I'm from a real small town. And I'd, I'd love the feeling of that. And that's why I'm sure you're getting back from the thing. Oh, it's just the best. Yeah. I mean, it's in, you know, when you know that you're, everyone's watching out for everybody. Yeah. Right. And there's this pride in this town. There's a renaissance going on in Columbia. Mike Wolf with American Pickers has five buildings here. Uh, Cheryl Crow has a couple. Yeah. Bob Doyle, Garth's manager, and then Garth's brother, Kelly Brooks, have two buildings on the square. Um, you got uh, Vince Neal of Motley Crue running around. He lives by me. He lives down the road from me. I want to do a podcast. Actually, I want to do an onstage interview with him. Do you know him? Nope. I All I ever him. see is a, a guy in an orange Lamborghini going real so fast. So did you ever see his black rolls? I don't know. Is that Vegas plates? or? Uh, I don't know that I did. Data plates? Yeah. So it was in a shop down here for a while because I think his girlfriend kind of did a little special treatment to the underside. Uh-huh. 
You know, apparently, who knew that a, that a you know a Rolls Royce Silver Phantom or whatever it is, Silver Ghost, uh, is not so good at going four wheeling. Well, first of all, the truck you can only put two bales of hay in it, so yeah, why feed the horses right. with that? Yes, and the, just... the the horses appreciate it when it's on some beautiful, you know, hand soft leather in the back with yeah. massaging seats. Because yes. who doesn't love massaged hay? Oh, man, right? it just tenderizes it like a good it's pasta. It's kind of al dente when the horses yeah. get it. That's it's... how they make wagyu beef. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it Wagyu or Kobe? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Either stuff I can't afford. That's all I know. But anyway, so the Mule House, we came here seven years ago. We bought our house here. And, um, when the the landscape of radio, terrestrial radio, changed so that, uh, you know, the onslaught, uh, the, the way that Pandora and uh, Apple Music and Spotify, the the impact of that on radio, for whatever reason, a lot of the decision makers in, in the radio world decided that they needed to uh, clamp down on uh, talk on air because then, you know, they're not talking on on, right. iTunes, on you know Apple Music, they're not talking on Spotify. We got to play as much music as we can. Well, unfortunately, I think that radio kind of stepped away from what. They should have leaned into their greatest strength, which is human connection. Mm. And you can't do that if you can only speak at max, you know, 20 to 30 seconds. That was the thing was I, I was so proud of the interviews that we were doing because we're getting content out of these world-class celebrities that stories that you'd never heard before. Yeah, And you can't do that when you have like, okay, we're going to do a 30-second interview. Here we go. So tell me about the divorce. Right. <laughs> you don't do that. So – and I, I kind of felt that, well, that is what I believe is my passion. I love interviews. And if if I can't do it, I need to find a way to do it. I think that really in life sometimes – I told my son this. We were driving down uh, 65 the other day. Maybe it's longer than that, a year ago. 65, and it was, I know, time is all over. I do the same um, And he said, Dad, why are you doing this? And I said, Brax, I said, look at all of these people in this traffic. It was Friday at 5 in the afternoon, you know, driving south. And it was just landlocked. Um, and I said, 99.9% .9 of the people around us, at some point, they are hoping that someone's going to come and knock on their door and say, hey, Bart. I have designed the perfect <laughs> opportunity just for you. Mm -hmm. This is going to make your wildest dreams come true. I said, those knocks never come. Right. Instead, what you have to do is you got to build your own damn door. Yep. And that's what we are doing. We're not waiting for someone else to make our opportunity. We are making our opportunity. That's and so great, that's what man. the meal house is. Yeah. And the Mule House was built on well, – first of all, it began because I bought a building for cars that could not house cars. Right. We brought our architect in. He's like, these – is the 1930s wooden floors. You can't – I'm like, what? I just bought this building. You tell me I can't put – I could put 16 cars in here. You should have talked to me one. first. I know. That's what he said. <laughs> and then I was so irritated with it. And a friend of mine said, why don't you do your radio show? I'm not going to do my radio show from the 30s grocery store in Columbia, Tennessee. But what he did was he planted a seed, making me think about what it is that I most enjoyed about my job, yeah. those interviews. And then I thought, well, 
if I could do that on stage and give people who are fans of these artists an opportunity to experience something they wouldn't elsewhere, yeah. that's unique. If I can create content for the labels and for the managers, if, if you have a newer artist and you want to come in and, and we can film all of this with 4K production technology, yeah. you walk away with all of that content that you can then put into your EPK or use it on your socials. However you choose to use that, you get all of that. Yeah. So that was the kind of idea. That was a thesis for the Mule House. And the first building, we got it. I'm trying to turn the lights back on by way of my arms around. <laughs> um, the, uh, we've been sitting and talking so long, it's gone off. Um, that was the idea. We looked at the, the first building. We had a ceiling of 200 cap uh, guests that, you know, you look at the business model that has a direct impact. Uh, so we thought we need a bigger building and bought what was the first Baptist church on eighth and South high street, 55,000 square feet has its own parking lot, um, had sat vacant for 17 years mm. and now reborn as what we believe is a state of the art facility where I learned the other day from our live stream partner, Nugs who do Springsteen and Metallica. One of the guys was in director he said, you know, he said, I've directed everything, Madison Square Garden. I do, you know, Hollywood Bowl. I've done this. He's naming all venues. He said, out of the 20 years that I've, you know, been in this industry, most recently in live streaming, this is only the second venue in America that I know of that is top to bottom 4K. Wow. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, did you know we're also pre-wired for 8K? He said, are you kidding me? I said, no. Like after midnight, we spent $250,000 in that first year of advertising, yeah. first quarter. With the Mule House, it is built without excuse. This is a facility that would be on par with what you'd find in L.A. or New York or anywhere else and designed with uh, a level of fit and finish so that when a guest walks in, a guest being either an artist or you know one of the, the ticket buyers – that if, if it takes your breath away, if you walk in, you're like, holy cow, you've effectively transported them to a different place in time. The, mechan- the, the, uh, the, the, the money will all work itself out. Yeah. And so, yeah, when the guys, you know, the guys that did our sound and lighting in here, Radio City Music Hall. Yeah. Garth's people. It's it's awesome. It, it's like to me, I'm calling it the sister church of country music. I'll take it. Which I think this is like I I can't wait to see. I mean, do you know Architectural Digest sent a photographer down and they just did a full day's worth of shooting here. Man, the the write up is being done right now. It hadn't gone to to print yet, but in Columbia, Tennessee, that's awesome. Mm. So what are you driving these days? Which day? <laughs> so we're down to 16 or 17 cars right now. Um, and it's not, you know, the, the ones that I have are, I've got a few really nice ones, you know. Yes. Um, but uh, the focus has really been on the mule house. Yeah. So, I mean, literally every penny I have is wrapped up in this. Yeah. Um, because I believe in it. I remember you used to have a car in L.A. that I think uh, John Rich maybe autographed the mayor. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> I'm at Taco Bell the day after 
uh, <laughs> after John Rich and Lone Star had come through. And John's just a character. He's one of my – it's so funny. We are so diametrically opposed politically, yet he was raised 16 miles away from me. His <sighs> the, Where he went to middle school – my sister-in-law was a music teacher for a while. In fact, my neighbor behind the street uh, was his music teacher and because uh, he was from Bushland and me being from Canyon. So we struck up this friendship uh, and people are stunned. How are you two friends? Yeah. Listen, civility. Yeah. Right? You figured like, out how yeah. to disagree and right. still walk out of the room. But so John and Lone Star, he, I had just bought <laughs> – a brand new Corvette, and it was parked on the premier parking lot, the same parking lot where Brad Paisley had his first kiss with Kim. Um, and I was very proud of it. You know, I finished the show at 3 a.m. California time because that was 6 on the on the East Coast. And I walk out, get in my car, and, you know, you don't – didn't see anything at night. Yeah. Because you're not – so the next day, though, that I was going to uh, the the studio to do the show, I'm in line at Taco Bell, pretty much my daily routine, and I made my order, and I'm looking at the person behind me in my rearview mirror, couldn't really see some kind of commotion there, and then I looked at my side view mirror, and that is where I saw that John Rich in Black Sharpie had written. Sorry, I jacked off on your mirror, John. <laughs> so then, you know, it, it permeated the glass and went through, and so I ended up, ended up having to put a new rearview mirror on there. Because who wants to know that John Rich had gotten intimate with yes. you? Although I don't I, think he actually did. Probably, probably not. Yeah, because it wouldn't have reached. <laughs> Sorry, did you John. keep that mirror? What's that? Did you keep that mirror? No. I would have framed that thing. Is the uh, being in the Radio Hall of Fame your greatest career accomplishment? The Country Radio Hall of Fame. Country, yes. Is, uh, you know, I'm still just stunned and and, uh, beyond grateful and appreciative and blessed. And the same thing with the National Radio Hall of Fame. You know, Reba, uh, she and Narvel were still, still together then. She flew out to Chicago. And was the person that inducted me into the Hall of Fame. Man. Can you believe that? That's pretty cool. Reba freaking McIntyre. I sat there at dinner with her and just, you know, she's so great. I just got an email from her day four yesterday. She's just so unbelievably kind. Yeah. Both of those mean Mm. the world to me. And and I recall that when I was uh, inducted into the Country Radio Hall of Fame, you know, and there are – Movers and shakers in the audience, I elected rather than to, you know, I actually turned the whole thing into um, a speech of support for Bob um, to get him inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame. You know, Bob Kingsley. Yeah. And uh, I love Bob. He was, yeah, he's a great guy. He was a mentor to me. Not through teachings one-on-one, but really just the way that he did what he did. Yeah. By example, sweet wife too, man. Oh man, I think the world of her. Yeah. Um, are you fired up about the Nashville IndyCar race? Well, yes, because uh, I'm I'm glad that it's going to be an opportunity for our friend Scott Borchetta to you know yep. bring fun to 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 the area. I am concerned. I do certainly see the 
side of the people who live nearby there, the fairgrounds where they're proposing to, to do that. It's, it's a noisy kind of thing. And the stadium. I mean, all those places that live around the stadium yes. stuff. Yeah, so, it's going to be. There, there is concern on that front. But, you know, so as far as the location is concerned, I have my questions. But as far as the idea of racing coming to Nashville, I'm, yeah, man, bring it. It's great. <laughs> this town has everything now. I know, dude. The national bird or the Nash, the state bird is now the crane. Oh, it should be, that. right? Yes. Yes. I counted. I remember when I was still working with Cumulus, I was standing outside of the uh, parking lot at Second and Peabody. My husband, Eric, and I were, and we counted nine cranes just by not, you know, standing up on anything, just turning around. 360, there were nine cranes. Yep. At one time, I saw 17 and I was talking to my dad, who used to be in the heavy construction business, and he said, yeah, you guys are famous now. You're all out of cranes. You're having to go to Chattanooga and Knoxville true? and Atlanta to get cranes. But, Well, man, what are your socials you'd like to – If anybody wants to follow, um, you know, the Mule House – we did a – I'm very proud of a 10-episode series we did on YouTube if you go to YouTube and just look up the Mule House, you'll see uh, I did a promo thing, and then these ten little episodes, um, they're only 10 minutes long each, but it kind of was the window into the building of the, of the venue. It's called uh, uh, From Dream to Reality, The Making of the Mule House. And it's sharing as we embarked upon our journey, but then also kind of a call to action to others to recur, recall what their dream was, yeah. and believe in themselves, to take that chance, and you know to understand there's never a perfect time. You just figure it out. Yep. Um, so that's if you go to YouTube and you look up the Mule House, you'll find that there uh, on Instagram and uh, you know everywhere else. It's at the Mule House. Same with Facebook. Um, that's where I'm really proud and passionate i'd love for people to kind of see what's going on what can you do after being on air yeah uh and which by the way i'd like to be very clear it's only momentary because you do realize that you're sitting in uh not completely finished yet but a radio studio yes tracy told me that so or that was the plan yes that's gonna be awesome yes so that's it's only a momentary thing and then um then it just at blair garner yeah. So, dude, it's so great to see you. It's so good to see you too. I hope I didn't like bore you. No, man, I feel like bad. Wander off and strange. Yeah, like I took too much of your time. No, I really appreciate no. this. Let's keep going. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to talk about the steeple because that's fantastic. You like that? Oh man. Now, so this- funny story. That was the original old steeple, and uh, because we are in the historic district, we had to, you know, you go before a committee and have all of your plans approved. There should be no change to the elevation, all this kind of stuff. I, you know, had to go in and uh, lobby for support from that board. Uh, and according to their guidelines, we were out of step by doing a few of the changes to the exterior that we were doing. And I had to go and basically testify before them and say, well, the 10 points that you have called out here are all based on the Department of Home, or, uh, Home yeah. Department of Interior. And if you go to if you do a deeper dive, you will see that in a building like a special or you know special building, special use building, a church, uh, you are allowed to look at it three different ways: a restoration, uh, uh, renovation, or uh, what was the third one? 
I don't know, but I said we are a renovation which allows for changes. Okay. So when that steeple, we pulled off the exoskeleton on it, you know, the trim work and everything you identify as the steeple, and there was the inner steel structure that was the support for it. The day that they were going to chop that thing into pieces and pull it down piece by piece, uh, Eric and I pulled up and looked at it. I was like, that really looks cool the way that it is. And so as they were putting up the the uh, um, scaffolding or whatever they needed to get up there, I said, no, 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 you can't do this. you got to stop. And pulled them down. And uh, we got it through the design process to kind of honor where the building has been yeah. and to keep that steeple in place. And uh, it's lit up at night on show nights. Oh, man. So it's just really a cool thing. Stained glass is so beautiful. It's so versatile, man, from weddings to concerts to I don't even – I don't know what – you've got so much planned, I'm sure. But this place is going to be awesome. I'm so happy for you, man. Thank you, Bart. I mean – I would say welcome to the area, but you've been here a long time, seven years, 13 years. You know, sitting with you is always really cool. You've always been one of my favorite people in the industry because – Oh, man. Well, you just likewise. Are, you're just – you're a good guy and you're fun and you're passionate about what you do. And I'm so glad that you've taken on this role as a podcaster and well, that you thought to, to reach out and ask for my time was, I thought, funny. Uh, <laughs> but like, what do people want to hear me say? <laughs> but, you know, very much appreciated. And I'm, and I'm so glad we got the chance to. Well, you thank know, you. You've always been one of my faves, too. So thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. I will see you soon. I look forward to it. Bye.